nothing that interesting has happened to me. I'm not a world traveler. I have a stable home life. I have no significant trauma. What on earth am I going to write about? Well, put your phone down and go outside. What are you thinking about? What do you not understand? What are you questioning? Uh What do things look like to you? What do you feel joyful about or thankful for? You actually don't need pain as material. All right. Today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith has authored six award-winning books and is a freelance writer and editor and consulting editor for the Kenyan Review. Her poems have appeared in the New York Times, the Paris Review, American Poetry Review, the Kenyan Review, the Southern Review, and the Virginia Quarterly Review. Smith is also a passionate and enthusiastic teacher. She has taught creative writing at Gettysburg College in the MFA program at The Ohio State University and at various conferences and nonprofits around the country. She happens to hear, live here in Columbus, and it was a, a real treat for me to have the opportunity to sit down with her and have her share her full journey. I've loved reading her work, and it's really just a, a great treat to be in conversation with her, to have her in the Columbus community. Super excited to share this with you. So enjoy it. All right. Well, we are here on the Gravity Podcast with Maggie Smith. Maggie, thank you for taking time out of your super busy schedule to do this. <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. I know there's a lot going on in your world. And uh, no, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join me and to have a conversation. Well, thanks. Yeah. So I want people to hear maybe something that they haven't hear, heard before. I don't know how much you've shared about your kind of very early days. Mm. Um, I've read some of it, mm-hmm. but you know, maybe just start by talking a little bit about your early childhood, your home life, et cetera. Yeah, I grew up in Westerville, Ohio. Mm-hmm. I was born in Columbus. We moved to Westerville when I was starting first grade. So I was six, early 80s. Mm-hmm. I have two younger sisters. We're all two years apart, sort of stair steps. So I'm the oldest of three. And I grew up um, with my parents and my sisters and um, my dog in Westerville. And actually my parents still live in that house and Mm. we all (laughs) gather. There are 13 of us now. We all gather for dinner on Sundays um, at my mom and dad's house, which I realize sounds like more 19th century than 20th (laughs) or 21st, but it's true. So yeah, I grew up in the suburbs, just, I I think a really normal, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. I'm putting normal in air quotes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Childhood, um, you know, went to public school in Westerville, had lots of friends, did Girl Scouts, Mm -hmm. um, played in the creek in my parents' backyard, Mm -hmm. was a complete bookworm, Mm -hmm. never played a sport. (laughs) in my life, um, could usually be found in my bedroom, reading and listening to music. Okay. And I think that's probably where the poetry 
seed Mm -hmm. was planted. You know, I wasn't reading a lot of poetry as a kid. I don't think kids read a lot of poetry generally, save maybe some Shel Silverstein or something. Right. But I listened to music constantly, Mm -hmm. Uh, my parents' records, and then Mm -hmm. later on my tape deck, Mm -hmm. and then later on CD. Um, Tell me about your parents. I'm just curious to hear a little bit more about just like the the Who they are as people. Yeah. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom until I think I was nine when she went back to work. Mm -hmm. It was like when I was old enough to get off the school bus Mm -hmm. and get into the house. And so for a lot of my childhood, she was just around Mm -hmm. all the time, like, and was a classic mom who like baked and crocheted and volunteered Mm -hmm. and, and managed three young kids. Mm -hmm. Because I think by the time she was 28, we were all in the world. Mm -hmm. So imagine being 28 and having three kids under the age of four. Yeah. That's pretty wild. And my dad worked for Ohio Bell, Mm-hmm. Um, he worked for the phone company. And so he went off to work with his briefcase every day and we were up to our shenanigans. And then he would come home at the end of the day <laughs> in time for dinner uh-huh. and, you know, family ties or growing pains or whatever, 80s sitcoms we would watch yeah. at night. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and he was incredibly funny. Someone asked me recently, like, what, what was your first realization that language was powerful. Mm. And I think the person thought I was going to say something about a book or about writing myself Mm -hmm. and realizing the power and being able to articulate your experiences or your feelings. And I may have surprised this person because I was like, well, my first realization that language was powerful happened around my dinner table. Mm because we were funny Mm. and are funny, a Mm -hmm. funny family. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so there was a lot of currency Mm -hmm. to, if somebody threw a little joke out there, who could quickly segue it into a bigger joke or bring it back around later in the conversation and kind of remind everybody of that little, (laughs) that little thing and kind of Mm -hmm. make up the punchline. And this is everybody was sort of in that like I think world, everybody, yeah. it was, I, I would say if, if you asked my entire family and interviewed them separately mm-hmm. off the record, they would probably say it was mostly me and my dad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he is the funniest person I've ever met to this day. Yeah. And we have a weird kind of thing where we, we say we're tracking and we do this thing with our hands uh-huh. because he'll just say something and I'm right Right there there, with him. And he has a very eccentric kind of kooky sense of humor, but Uh so do I. Okay. And so we can, what the humor was. Yeah. It's pretty dry and strange and we can kind of ping (laughs) off of each other. Yeah. And so we are often doing that. And I think everybody else in the family is also funny and, and laughs, but like, we're the more the joke generators in the family. And so I realized really quickly, if I was at the dinner table and somebody would like set me up, I knew how to hit you it. took it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so that was probably the, yeah. the beginning of my love of language was really about 
threading things together in a way that was funny. And in, honestly, in a poem, the kind of like turns you have to make mm-hmm. and the kind of patterning and repetition and kind of coming back around to something that really resonates with the reader. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is not that different from comic mm-hmm. timing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and I want to tug on some threads and eventually get to your process. But it is interesting to hear you say that you look back and you think about that in exchange with your dad, those exchanges, that humor as a way of like crafting mm-hmm. something, right? And and you're right, like you craft jokes. I kind of call it just, you know, creativity and oftentimes talk about how I see creativity as pretty much everything, you know, right? Oh, yeah. You're creating yep. conversations, relationships, you know, engagement with, with a family member, a friend. You're really like, there is a process there. You happen to also take that process and put it on paper, right? Yeah. But I could see the the connection there to getting the idea of crafting something, creating something. Yeah, because it's, it's about making things, right. right? And so even if you're at a dinner table, sort of having a kind of volley back and forth, like you're building something in that mm-hmm. moment. There's like an architecture to it, even though you can't really see it. That's yeah. sort of invisible, but there. Right. And so, so yeah, I think... I think sort of building and and being kind of a storyteller. I mean, I remember even in college, I had a, a roommate who would say, "Oh, do the one about mm-hmm, mm-hmm, this," mm-hmm. and it, I, I had and I realized, oh my gosh, I've got bits, yeah. and they weren't really bits; <laughs> they were me telling stories about things we had done together. But yeah. they liked my version, yeah, of the story. The way you and, told it, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I would have to be the sort of the storyteller for us. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, remember the time you went to that party and dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And somehow they liked the way I told it. Mm-hmm. And that's probably has everything to do with craft, mm-hmm. um, whether you're doing it in the air verbally or on paper. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, going back just to that family dynamic and the way that you described it and many of our Listeners are probably from the Columbus area. Mm -hmm. Some are not, but there is this sort of, not for everybody. I mean, it can be filled with all kinds of things, but the very like Midwestern Ohio, even like suburban life that you described, you have these two parents that sound wonderful and loving and like a real, like you said normal air quotes, but that's kind of like what I think most people think of as normal, Yep. right? At least like in this part of the world. And I'm kind of curious, like how, when you look back on it, how did you see it at the time? Like, did you feel like you were normal? Did you feel like you were more reserved or outgoing or were you like you were with your family when you were with your friends? Kind of tell me more about you. Yeah. I mean, I, (laughs) (laughs) I definitely felt different in my Mm -hmm. family. I mean, I felt like my family looked like most other people's families that I knew. Like Mm -hmm. I felt like we as a unit, most of my friends, I mean, a a lot of my friends, parents were still married at that Mm -hmm. point. I think I started having friends with divorced parents when I was like in in high school and college. Mm -hmm. But when I was a kid, Pretty much everybody's family that I knew looked like my family. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they had more siblings or fewer siblings, but almost everybody I knew had my sort of setup. I just remember feeling, and probably in some ways still do, 
like my job doesn't look like anyone else's in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, my life doesn't look like anyone else's in my family, Mm -hmm. even though we all see each other once a week and we're all incredibly close. Mm -hmm. You know, the, that little Sesame street little ditty that was like, which one of these is not like the others, Mm -hmm. which one of these is not the same. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) There was like a little element of that. And Mm -hmm. I think it mostly came when I was a little kid, I was more introverted Mm -hmm. than like gregariously introverted, Mm -hmm. meaning I had like a core group of friends, but I was not the most outgoing person, Mm -hmm. not a joiner Mm -hmm. and really like to be by myself. Mm-hmm. And so it it became clearer as as I got older that, you know, both of my sisters played soccer and so we would be traveling as mm-hmm. a family on the weekends to tournaments. Mm-hmm. And I was always kind of dragged along with my book and my walkman. <laughs> you know, kind of surly yeah. about it because really what I wanted to do was listen to music and yeah. read books. Yeah. Yeah. all the time. Uh-huh. And and now I have, of my two kids, I have one child who is very much like my sisters. Mm-hmm. And I have one child who is more, at least in sort of temperament and, and sort of hobby, mm-hmm. much more like me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sensitive to that. And I'm sure. like, you know what? There is nothing intrinsically better about being athletic versus, you know, bookwormy. Mm-hmm. There's nothing intrinsically better about being extroverted and wanting to join every school club mm-hmm. versus wanting to join none of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like these are just, I think so much of it is nature versus nurture. Yeah. Sometimes it's just, I mean, I have three kids and actually I was, I was trying to figure that, do the math, but I was a little older than your mother by the time I had three kids. So yeah. I know what that's like, Yeah. but um, they're all different and you can see uh, at least parts of you in them and understand how to relate to them yep. and parts of your spouse in them. And so you see how you relate with your spouse and how you relate with your kids. Yeah. I and mean, you can, there is some some nature versus nurture in there. There is, but yeah. we also just, I do think, like show up with so much of our own yeah. selves intact already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I do think I had like a kind of core self that mm-hmm. was, very interested in sort of noticing things Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. observing things. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's what came out as humor is because Mm -hmm. so much of humor is about observation and like picking up on the tiny little things. And, and that served me well there, but it also was a lot of, of a lot of, I think why I became a writer. Yeah. Interesting. Tell me, I'm just imagining you reading and with the Walkman, I'm imagining it's like the yellow one with the yellow headphones. The foam headphones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what were you listening to? What were you reading? Well, I mean, as a kid, uh, mostly fiction. I was reading mostly fiction because I don't think I was exposed to a whole lot of poetry at school until college. And, Mm -hmm. And even in high school, I just sort of made my own syllabus and found a lot of poetry on my own. So I was reading, I was reading what everybody else was reading, Mm -hmm. you know, Judy Bloom Mm -hmm. as a kid. And what I was listening to as a kid was mostly what my parents listened to. So I was a, like a complete Beatles super fan as a child. Uh So my walls were completely plastered with 
I think I had like Prince, Madonna, yeah. Duran Duran, <laughs> and the Beatles. Okay. Yep. Sounds about right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and listening to just a lot of like singer songwriter stuff based on their mm-hmm. record collection, like, you know, Neil Young and mm-hmm. Crosby, Stills and Nash mm-hmm. and Joni Mitchell. And, mm-hmm. um, and then later I got really into, I guess what we would call alternative music, right. you know, in 1990 here in Columbus, CD 101 started <laughs> yep. and yep. I had my my double tape deck in my room and I could call and request songs and then listen and then Mm -hmm. record them Mm -hmm. on tape off of the radio. So I was listening to like, you know, the cure and the Sundays Mm -hmm. and the pixies and the replacements and all the stuff I still listen to now. Yeah. 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 It's funny how we come back to that stuff. Totally. Yeah. I actually, um, share a Spotify account with one of my sons and like, he's got a nineties playlist and I'm like, Press that that's one. not vintage. That's not vintage. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So tell me as you start to go into high school and college, you know, start a, how things start to evolve for you or unfold for you. Well, I mean, I wrote my first poem when I was in junior high. So I think mm-hmm. I was 13, mm-hmm. seventh grade. I wrote my first poem. It didn't really start picking up until high school, mm-hmm. then I started writing a ton in mm. high school. And I I think that makes sense. I mean, I think a lot of people who make art start making art as teenagers. And the only way I can sort of explain that to myself is it seems like a time when you have more than you know what to do with, mm-hmm. like more feelings, more mm-hmm. confusion, mm-hmm. more thoughts, mm-hmm. not so much control. You know, like you're still a kid, you don't have Mm -hmm. a ton of freedom, but you're starting to see things through your own eyes rather than through maybe your parents' eyes or your teacher's eyes. Mm -hmm. So I was writing a ton in high school in Westerville and I I was just, I'm doing an an artist in residence thing at the Wax, uh, the Wexner Center for the Arts this year. So Mm -hmm. I've been visiting high schools Mm -hmm. and talking to students about writing. And I was telling them when I was in high school, I was, I did not work on the literary magazine. Like I, I really did not want to do anything that had to do with other people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I really just went to school and came home, but I would write poems on loose leaf paper and put them in a little manila envelope or a little manila folder and put them in my locker. And then I would give my combination to like two or three trusted friends who would then check them out of my locker, Hmm. sort of like a little free library. Hmm. And then at the end of the day, I would go to my locker and get all my stuff to get on the bus or whatever, Mm -hmm. and would spend the bus ride home flipping through the folder and looking at my friend's notes Hmm. on my poems. Like, oh, I like this part, or I have a question about this. or Fascinating, yeah. And so it was a way of sharing work in a really controlled way with just a couple of people that I trusted, but it, it was like me sort of offering a piece of myself. Yeah. It's interesting you, that you didn't want to actually do the things that were like formal writing where, you know, you have an opportunity to actually like write and share, Yeah, but you loved writing and you were sharing still, you found a way to share. Yeah. And, and I was, I was actually going to ask you, because you have this like normal life right now, obviously you're a teenage girl. So like 
stuff is going on, right? You got <laughs> stuff is going on, right? You've got a lot of <laughs> thoughts and, you know, angst and confusion and, and still despite the normal life. But I, I was wondering like how important it is or was for you to have some source to write from. If you have sort of this idyllic life, like do you need and I was going to actually ask you this about, you know, your memoir and, and just writing in general. Yeah. But I wonder, like, do you, how much do you need, like, some some pain, some suffering? Like, You don't. Okay, good. Yeah, Tell you me. don't. I mean, I, it's funny. I, about the memoir, that was my material, right? Mm-hmm. But if I hadn't had that material, I just would have written a different book about something else. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no shortage. Mm-hmm. I don't need mm-hmm. to suffer mm-hmm. <laughs> to have things to write about. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a kid, and even now, I'm often not writing about painful things. Mm -hmm. I'm often writing about things I notice Mm -hmm. or am wondering about or thinking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Often when I show up to a piece of writing, it's because I have questions about something Mm -hmm. or I see something in a particular way. You know, Mm -hmm. I hear something and it reminds me of something else. Mm -hmm. So it often begins with a little phrase, like a little scrap of language that occurs to me. Like I'll hear like a sentence in my mind mm-hmm. and I'll write it down or I'll see something or have a kind of sensory experience on a walk and I'll think, oh, that leaf looks like this or the mm-hmm. sound of the wind sounds like this. And mm-hmm. I start to make comparisons and then the poem grows from there. Mm-hmm. But it has nothing to do with, like nothing bad has to happen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm often telling students that because even, even undergrads, mm-hmm. usually I teach graduate students, but even undergrads, sometimes they'll say, oh, well, the writing advice I got mm-hmm. is write what you know, mm-hmm. but nothing that interesting has happened to me. Mm-hmm. I'm not a world traveler. Mm-hmm. I live in central Ohio. Mm-hmm. I have a stable home life. Mm-hmm. I have no significant trauma. Yeah. What am on earth am mm-hmm. I going to write about? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, go put your phone down and go outside. Yeah, just observe, <laughs> be yeah. in the world. What are you thinking what about? You what do you not understand? Yeah. What are you questioning? Uh-huh. What do yeah. things look like to you? Yeah. What what do you feel joyful about or thankful for? Yeah. You actually don't need, you know, pain as material. Mm-hmm. I want to just uh, ask you one question about that as you're teaching now do you think that and this maybe is gonna date but i think you know i'm safe with you here (laughs) you're Um, safe with me (laughs) but do you think that like kids don't really kids today like they don't stop to notice long enough they're so Mm. you know distracted in their phone like right to, to to stop and like let something come in yeah I don't think it's kids. I think it's humans. Humans even, right. I think it's humans. I think uh, especially if you are between the ages of 12 and 100 Mm -hmm. and you are likely carrying around a small computer with you all the time that keeps you occupied Mm -hmm. so that you never have to actually sit with your own thoughts. Mm -hmm. I mean, part part of what having a smartphone does for us it sort of keeps us away from ourselves mm-hmm. in a way where it's like normally if you were waiting for an oil change or waiting in the dentist's waiting room mm-hmm. or sitting in traffic or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be, maybe you would have music, mm-hmm. maybe you would have a book or, you know, the dentist, a highlights magazine mm-hmm. um, 
Or maybe you would just have your thoughts. Right. Or you would call someone mm-hmm. and actually have a human interaction mm-hmm. in that time you mm-hmm. have to kill. Right. And there's no more time to kill mm-hmm. because we now have this thing. And I don't think it's a, it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I... I write poems on my phone because I have a notes function, Mm -hmm. right? I'm listening to music on my phone, which sometimes inspires work. Mm -hmm. I can watch small videos that give me ideas. I, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's also a wonderful thing, full of things that can be inspiring and I can learn things there, Mm -hmm. but I do think it also particularly in the sort of natural world Mm -hmm. can take us out of the moment. Yeah, no doubt. I agree with both of those things. You know, it's tough. I mean, it's, it feels like we're in this like giant adjustment period of technology. Mm -hmm. So back to just the idea of you starting to write at that time, did you at the time know what you just said about writing and that you could just notice things or were you using that kind of teenage angst when you first started? I mean, I think my first poem was pretty angsty and I think some of them definitely had some angst in them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I can remember not whole poems, but images from Mm -hmm. poems. And a lot of it was observational and very like metaphor focused Mm -hmm. where I would see something and I would say, Oh, that sounds like this. Mm -hmm. Oh, that reminds me of this. Mm -hmm. I remember because I still get this feeling that little thrill when you can make a connection, you Mm -hmm. know, a metaphor is a kind of bridge from one kind of object to another. And that little thrill where I could explain something better to myself via comparison Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is like this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I understand it better Mm -hmm. because I've kind of translated it to myself. That was really satisfying in the same way that telling a joke that made people laugh was satisfying. Mm -hmm, Like, mm -hmm. because all of that is about clarity, I think, and articulation, Mm -hmm. like being able to nail something down Mm -hmm. in a way that's really satisfying. Mm -hmm. And, and connection. And connection. Yeah. 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 You're connecting things and then sharing it and then connecting with people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's, I, I didn't realize that, and I'm curious about just like, you're obviously a writer, right? Like this, this is not something, well, (laughs) it's not a phase, not yet. No, (laughs) but like you, this has been in you. And, and, and I was curious about that. Like, do you think it's in all of us or right? Like whether it comes out in this format or another, I guess I'm, I'm imagining that you had this home where it was welcome to come out too, even though you were unique. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Tell me more about like how you just let this come out and continue down this path. I mean, honestly, and, and it seems like a facetious answer, but I'm a writer because it's the only thing I'm good at. Mm. I mean, I can bake a cake. You know <laughs> what I mean? I can make people laugh. I'm a good parent. Mm-hmm. But really, it's the one thing that when... I'm doing it. I feel most like myself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I'm just me when I'm doing it fully myself. There's no sort of cloak or costume or anything. It's just me and my pen and Mm -hmm. paper. And it's the one thing that I felt like I could do 
well in a way that was different from what other people were doing. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I mean, I don't think I chose writing. I think in some ways it chose me, mm-hmm. but it was, it was also probably good for me as someone who was not ever going to be an athlete. Mm-hmm. It was probably good for me to have my own thing. Yeah. You know, like oh, to yeah. have my own thing. So it wasn't just like Katie plays soccer, Carly plays soccer and Maggie, we don't know what she's doing. Mm-hmm. You had a thing. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. had a thing. Right. And it's been my thing forever. And the the thing that's really funny to me now is that my, everybody else's things have changed. Mm-hmm. Particularly if you're an athlete, probably if you're 45, you might not be playing that sport anymore. Right. <laughs> um, you can only tear your ACL so many times, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I'm waiting. Maybe you're coaching or maybe your kids are playing or maybe you're a fan or sure, whatever. Right. But the thing that was my thing 35 years ago is still my thing Mm -hmm. because there's, as long as my mind is sharp enough, there's no aging out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, that's the beauty of what you do. Thank goodness. And in fact, you know, I wonder just like to the extent that it just keeps evolving as you do, just being in the world, the way you describe it, noticing, you know, I mean, it's endless, the material, yeah. there's no end to it. There is no end to yeah. it. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the, even being one person, one mind inside one body with one set of eyes. Yeah. Even if I got up and had a sort of groundhog day mm-hmm. every day, like even if I woke up and every day was exactly the same, mm-hmm. I would have things to write about because I would wake up slightly different. Mm-hmm. So I live basically in my hometown. Mm-hmm. I still see the same people and do most of the same things all the time. Mm-hmm. And I tell students this all the time too. You know, you can grow and bloom where you're planted. Like you actually don't need to leave mm-hmm. or have some grand adventure in order to make art, mm-hmm. like be a writer or a photographer mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. or a painter. Mm-hmm. Like there's enough variety in you engaging with your known world mm-hmm. right where you are. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point. If, and I think it's really important for people, you know, I was going to say young people, but people to, to hear that my son is actually really interested in film Mm -hmm. and he's a senior at Ohio state and he's making a short and he's found there's like a community here. Yeah. And yes, you know, maybe it's much larger in Los Angeles, but you can't find people to do things with. And maybe there's even benefits to not being where everybody else is. I think so. I mean, I, I know, I don't know that it's hurt my career to have been in Ohio this whole time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like it to me. I mean, if I were in New York, (laughs) maybe I would be around a lot more writers constantly. Yeah. I would also not own a home. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, My kids couldn't walk two blocks to elementary school and I wouldn't be eating dinner at my parents' house every Sunday. Right. So it's like there are things maybe I could do differently if I were sort of thinking in a very career first kind of way, mm-hmm. but I think as a writer, as someone who makes things, I really try to approach life from more of a human centered kind of way. And for me living here and making things here is good for me as a person. Mm-hmm. 
And if I feel stable and good as a person, because I'm with my people and I'm in a mm -hmm. familiar place and I've got a great support system, then I'm in a place mentally where I'm able to produce work. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I were someplace else and I was stressed out about my finances in a different way, or I were lonely or didn't have that kind of village mm -hmm. that I have now, maybe it would affect my writing, even if I were in quote unquote, a hub. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that a little later, but I'll just do it now as long as we're talking about it. I was wondering, you know, what it's like for you to live in Columbus mm. and if it was important in general for, for writers, for anyone to have your herd, you know, to have your people, to be around like-minded people where you don't feel like one of these things is different than the other. Yeah. Um, and were you able to find that here and how important do you think that is? I mean, I have so many close friends here mm -hmm. and a handful of them are writers mm. and most of them are not. Mm -hmm. And it, doesn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, you know, I probably have 10 close friends in Columbus who are writers mm -hmm. who do what I do when we can talk about these things. And I probably have 10 times that of people that I spend time with who, who aren't writers or who are creative in other ways or who are development directors and psych mm -hmm. school psychologists mm -hmm. and insurance right. brokers. And, right. and it doesn't matter. I mean, for me, the most important thing is being around people who know me mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 10, first of all, sounds like a lot. I mean, like you don't, how many more do you need? Really? You don't need that many more. Right. No. And, and frankly, as a single parent, I don't get out that much. Yeah. So it's not like I've, I'm going out five nights a week. Yeah. I'm really not. Right. So uh, I feel like so much of adult friendship is texting. Mm -hmm. Can we have dinner next month? Mm -hmm. And then like right. two days before that dinner, somebody's got senior night with their child and band or right. something. And then we have to reschedule. <laughs> yeah. So, so much of it is texting yeah. and keeping up and checking. Yeah. In, Checking and in and yeah. dropping off soup when someone's yeah. not well. Like, but it, but it really does matter. I mean, I think what you said is, is again, part of this, uh, maybe I'm just biased, like it's a Midwestern thing. Maybe it's something special about Ohio or Columbus, even that the people having your people isn't so much about being in this scene of writers or whatever it is. It's more about like, do I feel safe? Do I feel love? Do I have people that I know have my back? Yep. Right. Like that is more elevating to your work than maybe anything else. A hundred percent. I mean, I, someone asked me, Oh, it was, it, I did an interview for the New York Times book review and they were like, what is um, living in Columbus and basically staying in your hometown mm -hmm. meant for your work? And I was like, I have no idea what it's meant for my work, but I can tell you what it's meant for me as a person. Mm -hmm. It puts me in a better headspace, which I do think then allows me to relax and mm -hmm. write. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I don't know that it's important for everyone. It's, it's, funny when I tell people that I see my whole family once a week, mm -hmm. they're usually one of two reactions that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Half the people maybe say, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. Mm -hmm. I wish I lived that close to my family and we could all do that. We only see each other a couple times a year. Mm -hmm. What a gift. Mm -hmm. And then maybe half the people are like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine seeing my family that much. We would yeah. drive each other well, crazy, yeah. Yeah, right? That, and that so is a thing. Yeah. we're all different. Sure. I just think for me personally, being around my people is important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm with you. We have a lot of Sunday dinners and it's wonderful. Yeah. I love it. I do too. Um, and we are all different, but 
Um, and we do drive each other crazy and sometimes, we do that too, but too, like that's right. family. Right, right, right. Okay. So tell me, you go off to college, you start to study and, and really lean into your work. Tell me a little bit about that time in your life. Yeah. I mean, I went to Ohio Wesleyan, so I wasn't too far from home. I was, you know, 40 minutes away from my parents. I could schlep home some weekends if I could get a ride to do laundry (laughs) and eat a home-cooked meal. But at college was really when I started writing poems that sounded like me. Mm. And I say that because I think regardless of what your art form is, if it's music, if it's visual art, if it's writing, I think we all start out as cover artists. Mm -hmm. You know, like probably if you play guitar, your first songs are by other people. And yeah, and you're like, okay, maybe I'm not going to make it as like a Bob Marley cover band. Maybe I should start writing my own songs or, you know. And if for me, I think I was writing like (laughs) Sylvia Plath cover poems for a while because Uh she was my favorite poet. And in my late teens, early 20s, I realized the poems started sounding not like that. Mm -hmm. They started sounding like me. Mm. And that Mm. for me was the sort of shift, Mm -hmm. probably, you know, 2021, but I still had no idea what I was going to do. I mean, I I knew I would always write poems. But you couldn't connect dots into how that was going to be work. Like a, no, like a bill paying, no. I had no idea. I just thought I'm going to write poems my whole life. Mm -hmm. But I knew that it wasn't like you could just go and pull into a parking lot and sell poems out of the trunk of your car. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just, it's not a farmer's market. Right. So I had no idea And I didn't know anyone who did this. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I know a lot of people teach. So maybe that's something that I'll do. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, some people who write just have other jobs and they Mm -hmm. write on the side. Mm -hmm. But even in college, I had no real plan. Mm -hmm. And so when I graduated, I'd written some, I still think to this day, good poems for an undergraduate. And I'd won a couple awards that at my school and had published some poems in our little like literary magazines mm-hmm. read by the college. And I thought, I think I want to go to grad school, but mm-hmm. I don't know that I've earned the right to spend three years of my life just writing poems. Mm-hmm. So I took a gap year mm-hmm. and I moved back into my childhood bedroom, that little twin bed mm-hmm. that I, you know, was in in high school stayed with my parents for a year, worked as a receptionist, answered phones, mm-hmm. and just told myself, if you keep writing without deadlines, without a professor telling you what you're doing right or wrong, if you do it on your own without any support, mm-hmm. then you have earned the right to go and keep pushing yourself mm-hmm. in this direction. And I did. Mm-hmm. I just wrote like gangbusters. Mm. Um, I was annoyed that the phone was ringing at the mm-hmm. car dealership because I just wanted to write poems. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm like, no, service is not available. Leave me alone. I'm working on a sonnet right now. I have a job. That's, Can't you see? Knows. I'm busy. Yeah. I don't feel like answering the switchboard. <laughs> and so I went, um, I applied to grad schools and I applied all over the country. And I mm-hmm. thought maybe this is what's going to finally get me out of Ohio. I'm going to go have a grand adventure now. Mm-hmm. And so I narrowed it down to... Tucson, University mm-hmm. of Arizona. That's where I went to undergrad. Seattle, mm-hmm. Univ- uh, Washington, and Ohio State. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to Ohio State because mm-hmm. I've got a chance to move to a place that looks completely different. Mm-hmm. And as a poet, the idea of being in a new landscape, mm-hmm. having new imagery, and being really far away from home was so appealing. Mm-hmm. 
And then I got a full fellowship at Ohio State. And I didn't, I was going to have to take out loans and mm -hmm. teach and yeah. sort of, you know, cobble it together at both of the other places. And, you know, I may not have been the most practical person after all, I wanted to be a poet, but I was practical enough to know mm -hmm. that poetry wasn't like a, an investment I wanted to take a ton of money sure. right. <laughs> out for. Right. And so I sort of begrudgingly, yeah. if I'm being honest, yeah accepted the fellowship and said, well, I guess I'm staying here. Yeah. And I did. I don't regret it at all. Yeah. Yeah. So you go to Ohio State. Tell me about that experience. It was terrific because I was on fellowship. I didn't have to teach mm -hmm. right away. So I had a full year up front of just writing. Mm. Um, and I wrote like gangbusters and started sending work out to literary magazines that I was excited about and placing work. And I felt like I was... I had good momentum, mm -hmm. met people that have remained really important to me. I mean, my mentor there was Kathy Fagan. We're still good friends mm -hmm. and found a friend who, uh, Katie Pierce, who's still my first reader. Mm -hmm. So she sends me poems for feedback. I send her poems for feedback. And we've been doing that for 23 years That's now, yeah. which is wild to think about. So I, I taught a little bit while I was there and mostly just wrote and wrote and wrote. Mm -hmm. And um, my thesis became my first book. Mm. So I wrote my first book while I was at Ohio State and then placed it as soon as I left. So is that, was it at Ohio State or somewhere um, before where you really started to think, maybe I can make this a profession or oh, were you still not sure not if even you could? Yet. No, I yeah. still had no idea. I mean, even at Ohio State, I thought, well, what am I going to do next? And a lot of mm -hmm. my friends were applying for PhD programs mm -hmm. because they thought, well, maybe if, you know, I'm going to get a PhD, that'll make me more attractive on the academic teaching market and right. I'll get a job. And, and I just, I remember I taught a few classes and I was like, I'm not really sure this is something I want to do full time mm -hmm. because as someone who is pretty introverted, there is a performative aspect to teaching and being at the front of a room and mm -hmm. being the one who's talking and everyone is looking at you over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of, um, a lot of like people facing time mm -hmm. that frankly was pretty depleting mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. I do better when it's just me and my work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so I got a job at Gettysburg College straight out of Ohio State teaching mm -hmm. undergrads. So I moved to Pennsylvania for nine months mm -hmm. and I taught three classes a semester, all creative writing. And I came back to Columbus after that and I hadn't written anything mm. in nine months because I was you know, writing copious notes mm -hmm. and all of these students' poems and mm -hmm. have mm -hmm. meeting with them and, mm -hmm. you know, organizing the reading series and doing all this other stuff yeah. as a faculty member. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided I, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to apply for tenure track jobs. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I just, I want to come home mm -hmm. and I'll just find a job. Mm -hmm. And so for years I worked in publishing. Mm -hmm. I worked in educational publishing at mm -hmm. McGraw-Hill. Mm -hmm. I worked highlights for children, mm -hmm. um, and Zayner Bloser. And it was for my temperament, a better fit mm -hmm. because I could sit and work mostly quietly one-on-one -on -one when I wasn't in meetings, mm -hmm. you know, just me and my computer. Mm -hmm. 
And editorial work really suited me mm. for that reason, because it was quieter and it didn't stress me out in the way that prepping mm -hmm. and teaching mm. kind of stressed me out yeah. because it was performance. Yeah, it is stressful. I used to um, teach at Ohio State and yeah, I mean, they're like kids, but you still feel like it's your job to perform. Yeah. And, and it, it is, it, it is stressful. And I mean, there's some people that just love doing it. And I, I imagine you do it long enough, you know, it's it, easier now yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But there is this kind of like conundrum where people feel and not just feel like have to make an income. And yet if you're busy, it's much harder to have the energy to do the thing that you really want to do. Yeah. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts or advice on like, or how you navigated that. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I actually find that the more I have scheduled, the more writing I do. And mm. I don't know what that is. I hmm. think it's something where I sense the, the time squeeze. And so I kind of fiercely protect pockets of it mm -hmm. for creative work. But if I have like, nothing but time, which doesn't happen very often anymore. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to focus. Mm -hmm. Like if I've got a whole day, it's so amorphous. Mm -hmm. It's hard for me to focus. But if it's broken up into little bits, I'll be like, oh, I can write between two and five. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's actually been useful that's for me is yeah. having, having structure sometimes is the thing that gets me mm -hmm. to do what I'm doing. Mm. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're at this point in your career now, and are you at this point with your ex-husband or have you started your family during this period yeah. of time? Yeah. Yeah. We moved in together right when I was starting graduate school. Mm -hmm. So 2000 mm -hmm. through grad school, stayed together while I was in Gettysburg. So I just would like commute back and visit every once in a while. And then... I worked in publishing and like worked a nine to five job and, mm -hmm. and then quit my job when I got an NEA grant in 2011. So I've been working um, self-employed from home for the last 12 years. Mm -hmm. And we were together through, through that mm -hmm. decision too. And, and just curious because you've shared so much of this story, but when you think back on how you met in kind of those early years of your relationship, do you think back on it differently? Were there things that you maybe look back in hindsight and say, there was something there, I wasn't mature enough? Or were you, were, were you really felt like this was like a wonderful person thing? I mean, not that he's not, but the experience felt really beautiful to you at that time? Yeah. I mean, I think my, my thinking about it now is like, I made the best decisions at the time based on how I felt and what I knew, mm -hmm. you know? And so there isn't actually a lot of hindsight that I think would have gotten me to a different outcome. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there was anything yeah. that I quote unquote missed, you, you know, I think, or, yeah. I think more often than not. And I, I see this with, I mean, honestly, so many couples, especially when you get to your forties and fifties, mm. some, I mean, the sort of the short answer is I think some people are really lucky to grow together if they get together in their early twenties as we did. Mm -hmm. And some people grow in different directions. Yeah. And I mean, that's a, that's a way oversimplification as you know, you've read the book, but yeah. I do think at, at its core, there are the people who are still together mm -hmm. 
in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s who met when they were in their teens or 20s mm -hmm. either grew in similar ways mm -hmm. or have temperaments or their life sort of worked out in a way that they were able to kind of give each other space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To sort of change yeah. over time. Or, or, you know, maybe just wrestle through it. Yeah. You know, it's a and lot of work. Still, you know, come out on the other side. Yep. But yeah, there's definitely, you know, those different paths. You know, you've talked about this, but I, I'm curious, you being now a mother at that point, you know, and him having the like professional career, you being a writer, you know, you talked a little bit about how hard that was for, for all of you. Yeah. Right. And I thought it would be helpful just to hear you in person kind of share really what that experience was like. You mentioned that after good bones, your marriage was never the same, right? So there's that piece, but like the, before you get to that point, um, yeah. what was that like? Well, I mean, I think anybody who, if you've got two working parents and then suddenly you have a child and then suddenly you have two kids, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of recalibration yeah. that has to happen. And a lot of the recalibration I think was more me recalibrating because I had the more flexible work situation. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time we had two kids, I was working from home. Mm -hmm. So when you are the work from home parent, even if you are, I mean, I was freelancing for publishers. Mm -hmm. So I would stay up late working a lot because I had a, an insane amount of deadlines in those early years. Mm -hmm. I didn't have depositions or trial or, mm -hmm. or the things that he had on his plate that mm -hmm. were not movable mm -hmm. or flexible. Mm -hmm. Um, that was a very much like an eight to six job. Mm -hmm. Whereas mine, as long as I got my deadlines met, I could work from 8 p.m. to mm -hmm. midnight after mm -hmm. the kids were in bed. Mm -hmm. And so if someone was sick and couldn't go to daycare, if someone had a doctor's appointment or a right. dentist appointment or a class party mm -hmm. or... It was um, you. It was me. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mm -hmm. wanted it to be me. Yeah. So there's part of it where it's like, yeah, you can say, Ugh, all of this fell to me. Mm -hmm. But the the whole truth <laughs> is that, yes, it fell to me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to yeah. fall to me. It, mm -hmm. it made more sense. I wanted to be there. My mom had done all of those things. Right. So I was sort of also reenacting my own upbringing mm -hmm. in a way that became more difficult after Good Bones went viral because mm -hmm. suddenly... I was more in demand mm -hmm. and my career, I had the kind of chance to lean into it in a way I hadn't before. Mm -hmm. And that didn't look like my mom's yeah. life. Yeah. And so I was trying to sort of retrofit mm -hmm. a sort of, frankly, like 1950s, 60s, stay at home, mm -hmm. mom, parenting style onto the sort of growing pains mm -hmm. of my my job sort of taking up more space mm -hmm. and then also needing my partner to flex down mm -hmm. in some cases in order to fill in. Mm -hmm. And that's when things sort of, the, the strain kicks in. Mm -hmm. And I think my situation is a little bit strange because obviously it's, you know, not everyone's parenting story or or marriage trouble story has like a viral poem right, and, right, right, you know, like right. Meryl Streep reading it. So right, there are all these right. like pieces that make it seem kind of novel, but really it's so many people's stories. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just sitting here listening and thinking about this because this viral piece, there's not as much of a transition when that happens. No, there's no planning. Yeah. And it's like, but there you are. And you don't want to miss that because it's kind of what you've always wanted. I think, right? Like, I mean, you might not even know what it is, but like just the idea that your work was being so well received yeah. is is got to be part of what you want out of the work that you do, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and sort of that feeling of like, holy moly, yeah. maybe I get to do this quote unquote for real. Right. You know, maybe this won't be a side gig. Right. The opportunities are now there right. that you've so always dreamed of. So strike while the iron and, is hot. Yeah. But how do you strike when the iron is hot when you have a two-year-old and a six-year-old right. and your spouse has a full-time job that's really demanding? Right. And it was just a lot to sort of manage. And there wasn't a way to, you're right. There wasn't a way to plan for it. It's not like when you know you're going up for promotion Mm -hmm. and you can have a talk with your spouse, like, look, I'm going to, I want to be on this board and it's going to take time in Mm -hmm. my evenings. How do we manage it? Let's talk about it. Right. Right, Or you're going to go up for partner and it's going to mean this. How do we talk about it? Right. When you wake up one morning and your life has sort of blown up overnight, Mm -hmm. not because you applied for something Mm -hmm. or it just happened to you. Mm-hmm. I there was it was a quick scramble to to think about okay what what is possible mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure I did everything right. Oh, I'm sure. Know? I mean, yeah, I think you made that pretty clear that like it was messy and yeah. hard, and you know, like you said, you, you do the best you can at every moment, but yep. when it's so new and so foreign, sure, it's going to be a little clunky. Yeah. But you did say that was sort of the point where the marriage really was never the same. No, it wasn't. And I think, I think we all want our partner to be our sort of biggest cheerleader. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's what we want. Yeah. And so when I didn't feel that way, mm-hmm. That was really hard. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, okay, so now how do I make this work? Because I feel like these things that I'm really excited about are chafing Mm. this other person. Mm. And so I can't, like I stopped and I write about this in the book. Mm -hmm. I stopped sharing good news. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if I got something published or like when I got a speaker's agent or if I got invited to teach or Mm -hmm. travel out of state, I felt Mm -hmm. like, okay, how do I break this news Mm. as opposed to how do I share this amazing, like, let's go out and celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. For years we did celebrate Mm -hmm. wins together, both of our wins. Mm. And then I feel like there's something happened in there Mm. where it stopped being cause for celebration and, and sort of tipped more into inconvenience Mm -hmm. and strain. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard. I think about that now and I'm like, maybe, that experience would have felt really different for mm-hmm. me if I hadn't been also negotiating mm-hmm. all Someone of this else's, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. You know, you you talked about then. You know, obviously the affair happens, and just hearing you describe this part, mm. it, you know, it feels almost like the foundation was not strong. Then the viral thing happens, right? Now you have this whole new dynamic. Perfect You're not storm. getting what you, right? It's the perfect, yep, storm, perfect storm, right? And so, and then that becomes the thing, the affair. Not that that's excusable, but it is the outcome of what felt like this perfect storm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. In part, do you see it that way? I mean, I really do see it as a perfect storm yeah. of a lot of things went wrong. And 
maybe, you know, I, I talk about this in the book and sort of puzzle through it myself. Like maybe one of those things would have been survivable. Right. You know, how do you ever know? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's really tempting to do sort of a post-mortem mm -hmm. on a relationship and think, okay, so here are the things that went wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like just like you would after a surgery that went horribly wrong and you lost the patient and you mm -hmm. think, okay, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. What was the event mm -hmm. that was like the one that we couldn't come back from? Mm -hmm. And the short answer is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know what combination of those things had they been different could have was would have been survivable mm -hmm. for us as a couple i mm -hmm. just know that all of them at the same time together was just too much it was too much i mean there is a thing that that is you know something that i've heard therapists psychologists talk about that you know there is a point in marriage where it can just be too much it can just be broken it's too hard to repair yeah i don't uh, know how to like how do you find your way back how do you from... find your way back yep. yeah you might not be able to yeah and i saw somebody say something about how you took you know um lemons and made it into lemonade <laughs> and add vodka i forget who it was i read yeah. it somewhere right yeah but but what struck me more about that was I think your reaction was, and I didn't want any of this, no. right? Like, so it sounds like this sort of empowering, badass, courageous thing to do, which it is, right? You you made lemonade and you did put vodka in it and it, it you know, it's, it's awesome, right? But, but like, you didn't want any of this. Your kids didn't want any of it. I mean, this is not what you were wanting. And what I was curious about, we talked a little bit about like the, the suffering and the angst, you know, right. But, but, you know, I guess sometimes I think like spiritually, my belief is like, it's not always how we want it, but it's maybe, you know, how we need it. Mm. Um, and I don't know, needs the right word, but like, it, it does feel like there's some, again, this is just sort of my spiritual beliefs, like a divine perfection to it. Like it, does, I mean, it's horrible. It's painful. It hurts, yeah. but it does allow you this material to work with. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not going to pontificate on like what it feels like for the kids. I, I lived in a divorce household. My parents got divorced when I was 10. So yeah. I, I know what that's like. It's very traumatizing and difficult. Yeah. As a 48 year old, I can say like, serve me really well, but I didn't know that for yeah. decades. Yeah. And you also don't know the person you would have been without it. Right. 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 I mean, it served right. you really well for the person you are now. Right. Yeah. I, I wish spiritually I had that feeling mm -hmm. of like, it all turned out the way that it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. I actually don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Personally, but I also don't believe that it happened wrong. Okay. I just think it is what it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but having said that, would I trade a New York Times bestseller to have an intact family and have kids that don't have this baggage? A hundred percent I would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't want the lemons. I did my best with them mm -hmm. for myself and for my family. Mm -hmm. And I do think I made things that I'm proud of mm -hmm. from it. I made things that I know from the emails and DMs that I get that are helping other people process mm -hmm. their own big upheavals and losses. And that makes me feel good, mm -hmm. but not good enough to want to like take the hit mm -hmm. <laughs> for it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and let me just kind of dig in there a little bit with you. So, you know, not necessarily about the New York Times bestseller, not necessarily about like, would you do it again? But 
Do you see how it did really help make you who you are today? Mm. And do you take some comfort in that? And honestly, I mean, yeah. I mean, I wish the answer were yes. But I mean, I think my reaction to you is sort of my reaction to myself, which is I don't know who I'd be without this trauma. Yeah. I would love to meet that woman. You wonder. I would love to meet the woman who hasn't gone through any of this and Mm -hmm. is still writing. And I would love to see what that woman would have written over the past few years because it would have been books. It just would have been different books. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't have written Keep Moving. Right. Um, many of the poems in Goldenrod wouldn't exist, although many of them would. Yeah. Certainly you could make this place beautiful wouldn't exist. Yeah. Without all of this stuff. But the person I would be without five years of stress mm-hmm. and litigation and wondering what on earth happened to my life. Mm -hmm. And then the subsequent writing I did from it would just be something else. And maybe I'd be in a healthier, more peaceful frame of mind. Well, I don't know. I think, you know, maybe, maybe it is (laughs) what it is, is as healthy as it gets. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe like, you're right. Like who knows sliding doors, fork in the road, but like, here you are, it is what it is. It is what it is. Okay. So I, I made a note when I read your book. Okay. Um, I love that you dog ear. I dog ear also. I do. Yeah. But you know what? I dog eared with the hope that someday I'd be having this conversation with you. Okay. I like <laughs> so, it. It's aspirational dog earring. Yeah. And then I like just, <laughs> I, I like picked it up and I went right to this one spot, which I want to ask you about since okay. we're talking about, you know, I'm this in the experience. hot seat now. No, no, no. This is <laughs> maybe actually. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's, by the time these pages are printed, by the time you're reading this, may I be in a place of forgiveness. And so I'm wondering, you know, where you are now, what place are you in now? I think, you know, I think I would phrase it as a place of acceptance. Mm. I've been playing a little bit with like what even the definition of forgiveness is. Mm -hmm. And I think forgiveness is a little bit tricky because I think it's something that Forgiveness feels like a relationship thing where someone says, I'm so sorry. And you say, I forgive you. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that sort of peace with the other person, it's hard to get to that specific Mm. mindset. Mm -hmm. But am I in a place of acceptance? Yes. Uh, Am I in a place where I feel like I've set it down and I'm no longer angry about it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Am I in a place of like general sort of like peace and well-being that what is, is? Mm -hmm. And it happened the way it was going to happen. And there was probably nothing I could have done Mm -hmm. to have undone it Mm -hmm. or stopped it or, Mm -hmm. you know, changed the, you know, choose your own adventure thread of this story. Yes. Mm -hmm. So in in that case, that was kind of an aspirational Mm -hmm. thought I had while writing the book is Mm -hmm. how can I begin this in a place of absolute turmoil Mm -hmm. and then finish this book feeling like I've processed it Mm -hmm. for myself in a way that's healthy. And I did. Do you still aspire to get to that place? Or are you, now that you're at this place of acceptance, like just fully accepting it? I don't think I need it actually. Like, I think I've gotten to a place where I'm like, I've done the, I've done the work I need to do. Yeah. On my own. Yeah. I've done the work I need to do. And I'm actually not the the beautiful thing about acceptance is you don't need anyone else to get there. Mm-hmm. Like that is work you can really do on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's it. Yeah. Talk talk about the courage that it took 
to do all of this. I mean, I'm like an aspiring writer. <laughs> um, I'm actually writing a book right now and I haven't seen myself as a lifelong writer. And when you start to put out memoirs, right, you're talking about really personal stuff. And I actually, I'm struck even just by earlier in the conversation, just, you know, something you said about um, this just being me, right? The authenticity, the observation that this is really, this is like who you are coming out into your work. But is it scary? I mean, it takes courage, I, like <laughs> yeah. not just the writing, but then to move through the divorce and to be a single mother and a writer, have a career, right? Like, God, it just feels like you're so courageous. Thank you. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I yeah, mean I'm not, I, 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 that's just no, how I mean, it that's feels. A, that's a really kind thing to say. I, I don't, I don't always think I feel particularly brave, um, mm. but I, you know, had a reputation that I write about this in the book. I had a reputation as a child of being like the scaredy cat in my family. Mm. And I, I'm still teased a lot. And and it's kind of funny that, and my mom says this sometimes, it's sort of mind boggling to her that the most introverted and sort of afraid of taking risks member of our family yeah. is me. Uh-huh. And so how am I the one publishing these books and traveling right. constantly? Right. Doing um, all these big podcasts. Doing all these things Not and mine, like having yeah. to go on stage and like give keynote addresses. And, right. and and as like an introverted person who was like, I don't want to teach because I have to be in front of people. Yeah. And now a big part of my life is being in the public eye, Yeah. which is incredibly weird. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's sort of, it's sort of strange, but the, I think the way that it, the way that I manage it is by just showing up as myself mm-hmm. and trying not to overthink it. Yeah. It requires a hell of a lot less management when that's all you have to do. Right. Right. Like I, I almost never prepare for podcasts. I've prepared for you because oh. I'm like, it's Maggie. I got to make sure I like, <laughs> you know, I'm good here. But, you know, mostly it's because not because I'm lazy or procrastinating because I just want to be in like a very real conversation. Yep. And so, yeah, it's it's probably doesn't take anywhere near the amount of work when you have to you don't have to think about what you're going to say. No. You can just be you. You don't, you can, there's no stories to keep straight. There's no elevator pitch. There's no yeah. talking points. I mean, that's the, that's the trick is I, and I, because the other thing is I think, I think readers and viewers and listeners can sniff that out. Yes. I think people, whether it's your tweets or your Instagram or your books or your podcast or anything about you, I think people can have a really good bullshit detector. Yeah. I think people can smell when you are like regurgitating something that some media trainer has told you. I think if you show up as your messy self and make dorky jokes and, and are honest and it's, it's, it's not, maybe you're not getting this I, I probably don't give terrific sound bites because mm-hmm. I am just kind of showing up cold and talking off the cuff. Mm-hmm. But my hope is that when people are listening or reading me, they're like, oh, that's a human being. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting thing. And I and I wanted to talk a little bit about your process of writing um, because 
I think it's that very thing, right? This simplicity, this mm. authenticity, like the, but, but you, you have also combined, you know, the thing that makes you so relatable and lovable and people understand what you're writing about. They relate to the work um, and to you, but you then also have like, a whole hell of a lot of experience in doing this work, mm. right? So it's a combination of a lot of years, right? Like you don't just end up going viral, I don't think, I don't know. without like a lot of work leading up to that point. You know, you've, you studied, you've been doing this since you were a little kid. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's also like not overly crafted it's it's just sort of you in some ways like vomiting up you know what's inside of you at first it is for sure okay. i mean that's really the process at first i actually call it brain vomit it's funny mm. that you said that because when i first draft it's always longhand it's mm. usually on a legal pad or in a notebook um, and I call it brain vomit because mm -hmm. I'm really just trying to get it all out. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I actually, I didn't come up with that myself, but it really hit me many, many years ago. I saw there's a little documentary on Bob Dylan Oh, and he said, I think his words were like, puke it up. <laughs> like that, and that, it. that's like, you know, kind of how he just like, that's right. Get it out of you. Yep. And, yeah. and, and don't censor yourself too early. And mm -hmm. just, I mean, I kind of picture it as like wringing a rag over a bucket. Like when I'm getting a first draft out, I write until I'm exhausted. Like mm -hmm. I write until I've like ridden to the end of that idea and there's nothing left to say. And mm -hmm. often it takes me in completely unexpected territory. You know, mm. I might sit down because I see the wind doing something in a tree and I write that down. And then because the mind works associatively, it reminds me of this other time. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I get done with what I've drafted, I've ended up in a completely different place. And it's not about the wind and the trees at all. That was mm -hmm. just the, the sort of inciting incident mm -hmm. or the spark. Yeah. And my job, I think, is not to try to drive the bus. Mm -hmm. My job is to like keep my hands very loosely on the wheel mm -hmm. and let the bus drive. Interesting. I was wondering, especially with the memoir, but maybe any work and, and maybe you've been doing this so long, it's different for you, but the vulnerability and also the, you mentioned you share your work with people. You have readers, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, how much is it, uh, helpful for you to get feedback. I think you you mentioned as it pertains, I think I read to your ex-husband, you did not share it with him because no. you didn't want to hear, right? You'd have the one uh, thing where he gave you notes and you're like, all right, I'm not doing that anymore. But you have your people and they give you feedback and you like that part of the process. You want to hear from a few people that you trust. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I send poems to one or two people always and mm -hmm. book manuscripts. And then the memoir I did, I actually hired an editor that I wanted to work with because mm -hmm. I'm a poet yeah. and I know enough to know what I don't know. Yeah. And this is not my expertise. I'm writing mm -hmm. in a genre. I have no idea what I'm doing. And frankly, mm -hmm. I knew I was going to try to get away with some things in this book formally that would be kind of different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted someone who really had a firm grasp 
of the genre to be able to rein me in mm -hmm. if I was getting a little too poetic or experimental or frankly, let the leash out and be yeah. like, no, Maggie, you can do whatever you want. And so I did, I shared, I shared the memoir manuscript with three different people at different stages of mm. the game. And the feedback was invaluable. That doesn't mean I take all their notes, mm -hmm. but it, you know, and I don't take all the notes on poems either, but it's very helpful for me to hear from a reader's perspective that I trust mm -hmm. what their experience was mm -hmm. moving within that piece of writing so that I can make tweaks if I need to. Do you, do, do your publishers give you input and do you have to take it? Um, they do. And I don't think I do because oftentimes I don't take yeah. it all. Right. So, so my editor at my publisher, then when I turned it in and was completely happy with it, cause I'd already done all of those edits on my end, mm -hmm. she had additional notes mm -hmm. and, um, most of them I was like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, but I always have this space because they trust me and they know this is my work and it's so personal mm -hmm. to me that I can push back and say, no, actually, this is important to me for this reason. Mm -hmm. And they've actually given me a ton of freedom and flexibility That's to do great. what I want to do. That's great. Tell me, uh, as a single mother, um, with all the, you know, fame and opportunities What's it all like now? Where now that you're kind of in this spot, where are you? Tell me. I mean, this is just normal for us. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's I always wonder like what is it like for the kids because most of their friends, parents have sort of regular jobs. Mm -hmm. And I'm either in our house mm -hmm. or I'm out of town. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of what my job looks like now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh a couple times a month I'm on the road. I just got back from from Boston um, and I'll be in Louisville and Miami soon. And so that is a little strange, you know, like sometimes mm -hmm. I have to kind of peace out for a few days here and there, mm -hmm. but for the most part, I'm still doing all the stuff. I'm still mm -hmm. packing the lunches and going to the parent teacher conferences and handing out the trick or treat candy and going to the soccer games. And mm -hmm. if I'm out of town, can't make one, making sure they've got a ride to where they mm -hmm. need to go. Yeah. It it kind of still feels pretty normal. It's huh? it, it's completely to me. It feels yeah. completely normal. Yeah, yeah. I I I wondered about that. You know, just knowing that you live here and that you have this family and um, it's just you know, regular that it, life. Yeah, I think sometimes people assume that it's like some weird like Hollywood thing. But yeah, <laughs> no, I know someone read the. Yeah. I think I read a review or or a comment on something who and the person said, I don't know why when when her career took off, they couldn't just hire um, live and help. That would have solved all of the problems. <laughs> and I wanted to just invite that person to my home in yeah. South Bexley and, and yeah. to ask them, where should the live in, first of all, how am I supposed to afford the live in help? Cause I yeah. think you have maybe an outsized idea of what I earn. Yeah. And also where do they live in our 1500 square foot, three bedroom, one and a half bath uh, house yeah, yeah. in the, in the pool house, yeah, yeah. because we don't have, we don't live like that. Yeah. It's very modest. Yeah. Yeah. So I think sometimes there is a misconception about what life actually looks like. And it looks like me packing lunches. Yeah. I, I bet there was a lot of uh, commentary. Um, <laughs> seriously, I think, you know, I'm aware that there's this like thing that is like a man who maybe struggled with his wife 
who was very successful now. And that's a thing, right? Um, Particularly um, with men. I bet you there was all kinds of comments from both men and women about that. And I wondered how much of that you like listen to. Blissfully, I usually take the advice of don't read yeah. the comments. Yeah. I think it's wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so mostly what I do see is people who reach out to me directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if someone comments on my social media or if someone takes the time to email me or send me mail, mm-hmm. um, that I will look at. It's not that it's all kind. It's amazing to me. People will actually take the time to find my email and send me an unkind Mm, email that they didn't like the book. And it's like, why do you think I need to know that? Like, just read something else. I'm not reaching out to every TV producer if I don't like their show and telling them I really hated that. Yeah. I've had, move on. Yeah. In my own little (laughs) way, I've had to like, you know, you can unfollow me. It's right. fine. Like, right? like I'm, I'm cool with it. Please. You know? I'm so <laughs> sorry. I, like it I hope you way. checked it out from the library and it didn't cost you $20. Like, right. shall I send you a check right. as a refund? Right. Right. Um, but no, most of what I see is positive because people are reaching out to say things like, thank you. And I feel so seen. And this was so close to my experience mm-hmm. or I went through this too and had no idea how to articulate it mm-hmm. or and that that's all incredibly meaningful and helpful and I think makes me more brave. Yeah. You know. Was it therapeutic for you to write this book? <sighs> you know, maybe, but I think it was also probably therapeutic in a negative way, mm. <laughs> anti-therapeutic. Because you had to relive it. Because I had to go back yeah. into it. So yeah. I I don't know on balance. Mm-hmm. I would say it was probably therapy neutral. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, tell me just as we wrap up, um, what now, you know, what are you excited about? What are you working on? Where are you going from here? What now? Um, I have a, my next book is a picture book for children Mm. that I readers will be happy to know did not illustrate because no one wants my, you know, Sharpie stick people on a pizza, pizza box, which is about the quality of my visual art. It's called my thoughts have wings and it'll be out in February. Mm. And I'm really excited because I've it's my first book for kids. And mm. I've been, ever since working in educational publishing I've, and being a mom, I've mm. always wanted to write a book mm-hmm. for kids. Mm-hmm. And so this is really um, like more exciting to me than probably most people would realize. Mm-hmm. And then um, I'm working on poems um, constantly. Mm-hmm. Is anytime they show up and knock on the door, I'm just so happy to open it and usher them inside. And mm. then my next book after the picture book will be a collection of essays mm. about creativity. Oh, wonderful. And writing. So that I'm working on now, mm-hmm. slowly but surely. Mm. Wonderful. Well, maybe you'll come back and yeah, share that with our community because the Gravity community is really in part to create a space for creative people um, of all kinds yeah. to find each other and to learn and connect and grow. And I just really appreciate you, not just for taking time to be here and share your story, but just for how you're showing up in the world and what you're doing and how you're sharing yourself. I think it looks like tremendous courage and vulnerability and authenticity. And those are all things that I really admire. So yeah, thank you. Any final thoughts? No, I just want to say thanks. That's so great. And count me in. Okay. All right. Good. It's a date. All right. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. 
Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 